0: To the Lutheran History Podcast, where we cover over 500 years of Lutheran history. We hear new stories, examine old heroes of faith, and dig into the who, how, what, and why of history-making. So whether you are a Lutheran seeking to understand your faith, rich roots, a history lover, or a person looking for stories of trials, tragedies, or triumphs, you'll find what you're looking for right here. Today's guest I'll let her introduce herself, but we're going to get a little bit uh, broader into the realm of Reformation history. Of course, we'll talk about Lutheran history, too. Uh, So uh, let our our guest introduce herself.
1: Great. Thank you so much for this invitation. My name is Karine Mogg. I am a professor of history at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm also the director of a special collection. It is called the Meter Center for Calvin Studies. And it's a special collection focused, as it sounds like, on John Calvin. Um, And we collect everything we can by or about John Calvin in whatever language is available. We offer fellowships for people to come do research on our collection. We organize conferences, symposia, workshops, lectures, the whole nine yards. I've been the director here from the Meter Center now since 1997. So I'm in my 26th year. And I am from Canada originally, born and brought up in Montreal, did my undergraduate degree in Montreal, and then my graduate work in Scotland. I have my master's and my PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And my own area of research, I'm a social historian of the Reformation. I am particularly interested in the lives of ordinary people, what was it like to live in the Reformation era? What was it like to be in a community that made a confessional switch from, say, Catholic to Protestant? How do people actually live through that? Uh, so, I am going to be talking today about my recent book. I'll do it like this. There you go. Worshipping with the Reformers. And it's published by IVP, InterVarsity Press. And it was published in, let me try and remember the date now, because I always forget these things, uh, published in 2021, so reasonably recent.
0: Yes, and I think what what I saw this book, I guess I'll tell the story briefly, but I've already dipped into the IVP um, Press Reformation Commentary Series. And I don't know how much you have to do with that, but I know it was advertised, your book, as kind of the companion piece to that, that commentary series. Do you want to speak anything about that series nice. at all? Oh.
1: So, uh, the person who asked me to do this book was David McNutt, who was at the time working at IVP as an editor and very closely connected with the, uh, Reformation Commentary in Scripture series. So that's a, that's a really interesting project. It's a multi-year, multi-editor project. What they're doing is they go book of the Bible by book of the Bible. And they go chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And as they do that, they find commentaries or sermons or reflections from theologians and reformers of the 16th and into the 17th century. So you can read, for instance, a section of the book of Acts. And then underneath, you're going to have quotations, fairly lengthy, not just like one sentence. Quotations from various reformers, all translated for you into English. It's just amazing resource. So if you want to know what reformers have to say, about specific parts of scripture, that is a wonderful resource, all in one place. And then you could follow up by reading more about what Musculus or Melanchthon or any of the other theologians happen to have said. And then my book, Worshipping with the Reformers, is one of these companion volumes to this series. And uh, there's been several others done, and they're meant for a general audience who are interested in understanding more about the context in which the reformers were operating
0: very good so um i was kind of working on a review of, of this for a, just a small uh pastors uh i do not call it a blog but a small uh, newsletter that we kind of talk about the book um that we're we're reading and i talked a little bit about the strengths and weaknesses of doing the block quote um thing and i want to hear your thoughts on that too but i think one of the strengths of it is it helps you get that immersive experience, which I know you you just said was really important, and I agree, uh, to feel what is it like to be in their shoes from their their perspective. Uh, The commentary series, you can do that more about text, Um, but your book, you are actually taking people into the worship setting, which um, for me, it's a little bit easier to at least imagine I'm Mm -hmm. there with them um, because they're talking about life and Christian life and, and practices. Now, to me, one of the downsides of taking just a few quotes is... Um, is a minor voice going to be inflated to something bigger than it really was, or are we missing something? Um, But I think you do a good job in your book. I'm going way off script. I think you do a good job here uh, because you use your secondary sources and you really say, okay, we know the context. Do you have have anything to say about the use of small quotations to frame a big picture?
1: So in my book, uh, most of the time I've, I've introduced every chapter with, with vignettes, which I'm calling vignettes, which are actual accounts from the time. Sometimes it's a uh, full text quotation from a primary source, often though it's my paraphrase of something that happened, an event that happened, and that illustrates preaching or the use of art and music or going to church or so on and so forth. So these these vignettes are there to bring people into the theme. So my book is organized thematically by different aspects of worship. I figured that was the most ex- enjoyable way to organize it. And it works well, I think, both as a writer and as a reader. It seemed to be the right way to conceptualize this particular project. And then I do have shorter quotations every so often from reformers, uh, Luther or Calvin or anyone else. And there really the idea is to help people hear the words of the reformer theologian on that particular topic. And obviously, you can't go on and on because it's not that kind of book. If if people want the full source, then they look at the footnote and they can follow that through.
0: Yeah. So this is, you know, like you said, it's not that kind of book, but I think it's a good entry level for your everyday, you know, faithful Christian, your, your average pastor who maybe doesn't have a degree in history or isn't even looking for that, but as an interest in, well, how did they do things back then? And, but with you always have suggested readings at the end. So if you want to take it to the next level, um, it's a very useful guidebook for that as well. Absolutely. But I, I think we got into how you got started on this topic and project, part of the, the IVP series. Um, so let's get into the, some of the content now. And sadly, we in an hour we won't have enough time t- to regurgitate the entire book, but I suppose that's why people should buy the book, right? That's the, that's the idea. But we'll, You'll give us some of the, the nice uh, details. So big picture, this is a Reformation book about the Reformers and, and worship. What can you tell us about how the various Reformers, at least some of them, developed a theology of worship, first of all?
1: So, it's an interesting question. What is a theology of worship and how is this developed? I would say there are very few reformers who have that sort of preconceptualized in their head. I think it's something they work out as they go and particularly in reaction to or in conversation with Other ways of doing worship that turn out not to be the ways they want to do worship. So I don't think we're going to find any reformer that comes up with a preconceived, pre-digested theology of worship that they can line up and present in one text. And for many of these reformers, you have to look through a lot of different pieces of their writings. It could be sermons. It could be commentaries. It could be correspondence. It could be their work on a church order right, to try and figure out, well, what is their theology of worship? There are some principles, clearly. Um, Protestant leaders, so you could be thinking Lutheran, you could be thinking Reformed, uh, are going to want to make their theology of worship grounded in Scripture. So that's principle number one. It needs to be grounded in Scripture. The Reformers are very keen to say that what they do in worship is based on what Scripture says. Um, Now, Again, that's a bit of a flexible concept, depending on which reformer you are, right? Because, um, obviously, if you look at the whole sweep of Scripture, and you're reading the Old Testament versus the New Testament, things are done differently. And different reformers come up with different decisions as to what is normative, right? What should be done? What shouldn't be done? What's okay to continue from previous practice? What needs absolutely to change? And each time they will argue that it's done on the basis of faithfulness to Scripture. So that is kind of the principle number one, is the the, the faithfulness to Scripture. Um, and then, as I said, a fair bit of the idea of what should or shouldn't be done in worship is based on a strong sense that the other groups within the Reformation story are not doing things right. And so the theology of worship is often oppositional. In other words, we do the Lord's Supper this way, and we do it for this and this reason, which are scriptural, and we also at the same time tell you why this other way of doing it is completely wrong, right? So there's this polemic that's kind of involved. As you look at theology of worship, it's never neutral. It's always articulated in the context of controversy. There are debates. This is a hotly debated topic in the 16th century, just like there are worship wars today, Right, there was conflict over worship in the 16th century. So it's never a neutral topic engaged in without any contextual um, reference. It's always highly, highly contextual.
0: So you talked about normative, and, and of course, starting with scripture. Um, for me, and I want to hear your thoughts on this broad, sweeping oversimplification and generalizations. My view was coming up was more of okay, the Reformed. Side of things, and of course, there's variety there within the, that branch, but within the Reformed, there was a, I don't know what the right word, there was a, an appeal to really looking closely at the Old Testament patterns. And to me, it seems like they were more willing to make Old old Testamentship normative than, say, the Lutherans and say, well, this was an option, but we have maybe a Christian freedom application. Differently, what are your thoughts on that? Am I nailing it right, or <laughs> um, the, you know, area? it depends.
1: It depends which area of worship you look at. Right, if you're talking about images, for instance, in the place of images in worship, yes, I would say your explanation holds. That's to say that the Lutheran Church proved to be much more willing to consider images in church as an indifferent matter, as adiaphora. You may keep them, you may not keep them. It's good to know the mind of the community. Luther actually is very pragmatic, and he knows that changing everything all at once, especially in just the out outward appearance of worship, is going to make things more difficult for believers to make this transition. He's he's a smart guy. He realizes this. Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, the Swiss Reformed are very much more in favor of saying, okay, no, the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not have a graven image, and images in church to them are either signs of or vectors for possible idolatry, and hence they all need to be removed. Right. However, there are other aspects where you think, wait a moment, they aren't very faithful to the Old Testament. And it's always made me laugh that um, Calvin, when it comes to music in church, is very clear it has to be we sing scriptural text and scriptural text only. That's fine. But as soon as you get to the Psalms or uh, the texts of the Old Testament that refer to people accompanying singing with lyre and harp, I keep wondering, well, why don't we have lyres and harps, guys? I mean, this seems like it would be totally appropriate. Oh no, 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 no! That, according to Calvin, is um, Jewish tradition, and that does not need to be replicated. So they they pick and choose; they are not yeah. consistent.
0: Yeah, no, that that is interesting. So. One of the particular things you get into with, with worship, um, and it's a reflection of theology of worship, of course, is the varying views and practices of church attendance. And of course, as Americans, we need to be reminded maybe there's a church-state relationship that's totally different the way it is now, and that is something to do with that. But what would you like to share about uh, church attendance?
1: I find this is one of the points. Church attendance often falls under the broader topic of church discipline. And that is actually a topic that modern audiences find their hard time to get their heads around. Because as you said, it's a different model of church, right? Apart from the Anabaptists, who are like the exceptional group, because they're never a state church, um, everybody else, so Anglicans, Lutherans, Reformed folk, Catholics in many places too, it, these are state churches, right? The government and the church are working in sync. And You know, you can get from 1555 with a piece of Augsburg, right? The faith of the ruler is the faith of the people, right? Boom, that's just the way it's going to be. And your two options are Lutheran or Catholic. But in the Swiss cities, right, the government chooses which confession group is going to be in their community. And that's then the case for everyone, and you can't be something else. You have to be exactly that. So there's a very close tie that modern audiences, especially in North America, have a hard time wrapping their heads around, right? I mean, the fact that pastors are paid civil servants, is just mind-blowing to a modern audience, right? And that at church, you would have not just the community, of course, but also the magistrates, you know, sitting there, one, two, three, four, five, your city council's right there in the front row, right? So there's, there's a very interesting dynamic between church and state in these, in these communities. And that shapes especially the idea of church attendance, because the other point we need to understand is that Church attendance in the 16th century is seen as a communal obligation. It, it's the, it's the role of the community to be present in the face of God at worship. So it's not more like individualism where, well, you choose if you want to go and if you don't want to go, that's okay too. And, uh, you know, you find your spirituality wherever you find your spirituality. That's not a 16th century mindset. The 16th century mindset is we all do it the same way. And if we don't all do it the same way, and if we're not all in church together, honestly bad things are going to happen right god is going to be upset with the community we may have thunderstorms or floods or fires or 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 drought or famine you know there's a there's a very strong communal push hence the authorities pushed very hard for mandates for church attendance and again it didn't matter if you were anglican reformed lutheran catholic i found across the board Religious authorities and political authorities have the same aims in mind. Everybody needs to be in church. And they enforce that in various ways Uh through a system of church orders, which simply lay down the rules. This is what you shall do, right? Uh Through the use of fines for people who don't turn up. Um, through the power to shut down any alternative activities, such as bars or pubs or places to eat, right? Those will be closed during worship time. So they're trying to you know, block out the alternatives. So in most instances, this is a very strong compulsion that everybody needs to be in church. The only exceptions tend to be either on border areas or in communities where there is no one confessional group that's in the majority. So in border areas, yes, the ordinances say everybody needs to be in church. But if you live, say, on the Dutch-German border, and you are on the Dutch side, but you're actually Catholic, on a Sunday morning, you'll get up and leave your little Protestant enclave and cross the border and go into the German Catholic city. And from the German Catholic city, people who are Reformed are doing the exact journey in reverse. Right? So it's still a sense of obligation to attend worship, but not in your own community, in the community that matches your faith confession. But that really only happens in border areas. And even then, those trips are dangerous because people throw stones at each other, they insult each other, they attack each other. It can get very, very violent. Um, the work of Ben Kaplan, he, his work primarily on the slightly later period into the, the 17th century. Um, and he really lays that out beautifully. It's just amazing about the Dutch German border. Um, and, uh, then the question is also what happens in an area where no one confession is dominant. And really the best example probably is in the United Provinces, in the Dutch provinces that went independent from Spain by the late 16th century. Officially, they are reformed, but There was a fairly strong minority of Catholics, Lutherans, and in fact, Anabaptists in the community. Officially, therefore, the mandates were in place. But in reality, there's a lot of wiggle room. Um, There are hidden churches, Catholic churches, for instance. They're known. You can visit them yet in Amsterdam and places like that, which outwardly look like just a plain building. But in fact, inside, it's a Catholic church, right? So, That was um, an option for people, if they didn't do it publicly and wave their arms around and say, hey, here I am, you know, quietly to attend another option. And then the Reformed pastors were consistently aggravated with the Dutch political authorities because they felt the Dutch political authorities were not strongly enough enforcing the rules for church attendance, were not shutting down the bars, were not shutting down the other options. So you get a lot of very stressed pastors who feel that, their hopes for what the reformed community might look like are not realized because they don't in fact have the full support of the government leaders in their, in their areas.
0: So that for the, the attendance thing now leads into participation in worship and there's already frustration and attendance not happening. Um, But you had some pretty, at least I thought they were funny, you know, 500 years later, I think if, this yep. happened at my church. I would not find it funny, but or some of the challenges of the people who actually did come to church, um, yep. and what did that look like?
1: So part of the problem is, okay, people are there. Great. Wonderful. Now you have to inculcate into them the kind of worship which you want to see happening. So for instance, in a reformed community like Geneva, there's been a huge shift, right? From being Catholic and attending a mass to being reformed and listening to a sermon. And that's just not instinctive to people right there are folks who live through the change but don't get the change right so they bring in people into the consistory the body that's in charge of church discipline in geneva and many of them are older many of them are female and they're brought in to the consistory and asked to explain themselves because what they've been doing in church is muttering you think muttering, what are they muttering about? Uh, well, it turns out they're not complaining about the service. What they're doing is reciting their Catholic prayers. They're doing what they always did in worship, right? And they don't get the idea that now they have to sit still and listen to the sermon or they're getting up and moving around the church building because they're used to praying at side altars and lighting candles. And now they're not supposed to do this and they're not, they can't adjust to this. It's not easy. So you've got the confused, okay, that's one group, the confused who don't really get the change, don't understand the new way of doing things and haven't adapted. That's one. You get the disinterested, that's a whole nother group, right? Um, Those are the ones most likely to fall asleep in church um, or cause a ruckus or poke their neighbor or, you know, get into some kind of fight. Um, They are there because they have to be there, but they're clearly not engaged. Let's put it that way. Uh, you also have the problem of everybody having to sit and listen to something. If there are children, it can get disruptive very quickly. Uh, there's no cry room. There's no Sunday school, right? So you have howling babies. Uh, you have children who are kind of less than quiet and peaceful. So th- there are some pretty funny stories of pastors. I mean, in Scotland, for instance, they finally decided that if families were bringing, bringing their babies for baptism. Could they please wait outside the church until the time of baptism rather than bringing their howling infants into the church and the poor pastor's sermon is just drowned out by the screaming babies? So there there's, you know, the very human kind of aspects and even basic things like they have a problem with stray dogs and these dogs are wandering in and out of church and sometimes there's a dog fight going on in the middle of the service. And so now you have to have dog catchers involved to remove the And so there's there's a lot more liveliness in the church services than we might be expected to hear.
0: So how did uh, pastors, church worship leaders, how do they respond to these challenges other than tell and wait outside?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think some of the pastors are often frustrated. um, And they tend to, some of them at least, tend to use the pulpit to express their frustrations. Um, so there are certainly cases from Geneva where the pastor essentially told off people from the pulpit, either for coming in late or for leaving early. Um, and that did not go down well. The congregation did not appreciate that. The person being targeted definitely didn't appreciate that. So there are some tense moments, uh, where the pastor's use of the pulpit, the congregation does not appreciate that becoming a, um, a a safe venue to, Deal with problems in behavior in church, that that's not an appropriate way to behave. So there's, there's, um, there's definitely some limits to what the pastor can do, but some of the pastors are clearly frustrated and easily frustrated with their congregation. So there, there's a sense in which for some of them, it's not very easy sometimes to be a pastor preaching in these circumstances. And then, okay, the other problem you've got is acoustics, right? Um, there's no microphone, there's no sound system. So as a pastor, you have to be someone with a good, loud voice. And in fact, there are cases in the 16th century where someone who was otherwise a very good, very learned, very knowledgeable person does not get to be a pastor in the congregation because they just can't be heard. Their voice is too soft. It doesn't carry. And that's not going to work. So we have to just think of, like, basic problems that you might face as a pastor. Being soft-spoken is not a good attribute for a pastor in the 16th century. You'd better be a good, loud, clear speaker.
0: Yeah, that, or I guess you get sent to the small parish chapel out in the country where you, you can fill the room. Yeah. Well, interesting. Well, and so the, I'm picking up on the resistance to an improper use of preaching. Don't call us out in the middle of service. Don't turn it into your... I guess your personal grievance, hearing of grievances platform. And I've noticed that, you know, obviously in Lutheran perspective, I've seen this in the Lutheran Reformation. Now I'm taking a course on Reformed Reformation. I've noticed both, like you said, both want to be very biblical, but both see preaching as almost the, if not the primary, one of the primary vehicles of Reformation is mm-hmm. preaching. And mm-hmm. it remains important to this day, I think, across um, Christianity and uh, Protestantism, especially. So what specifically, though, what role did preaching play in the Reformation of these churches um, envisioned by the Reformers? And what did they come up with as far as length or topic selections? What guidance did they develop over time?
1: So Luther really saw preaching as the central way in which congregations would encounter the word of God. That's both the Word of God understood as Scripture and the Word of God understood as Christ himself, right? And Christ is at the center of Luther's preaching, right? There's that very famous um, altarpiece by Lucas Cranach with Luther preaching, right? And mm-hmm. the congregation is there and the pulpit is here. And in between, what do you see? You see Christ on the cross, right? So what is the heart of preaching? It is preaching Christ. It's preaching Christ crucified, preaching Christ risen. That is at the center of preaching for Luther. Luther, however, never laid out a real uh, volume of homiletics, right? He doesn't set out, this is how you should preach. Um, his sermons, however, were very valued and were turned into exemplary sermons, postals that could be used by other pastors who have less knowledge, less ability, and they can either use his model sort of structure to build their own sermon or even just read something of his out to the congregation. Uh, Melanchthon was more likely to have worked on homiletics, although not, again, a very extensive work. Um, and the, the whole question of how to preach is a really interesting one that is a developing field in the 16th century. Uh, really much by the end of the 16th century into the 17th century, you have much more works on how to preach and what to do when you're preaching. But there were different ways of approaching scripture. So before the Reformation and in many places, such as in the Anglican Church and among the Lutherans also, a lectionary was very common, right? It laid out the readings for a particular Sunday, week by week, year by year. And uh that was one way to organize what would be preached on. It has the advantage of making sure that everybody is preaching on the same text at the same time, which is kind of nice to ensure consistency that way. Um, The Reformed tended, at least at first, to favor continuous preaching, which means you start in Matthew 1, verse 1 to 6, and then next time you do Matthew 1, verses 7 to 12, and you just work your way through the whole of the gospel, and then you go to another book and you do the same again. Um, When Calvin preached on Isaiah Sunday by Sunday in Geneva, it took him 18 months' worth of sermons to get through all of Isaiah. Yep, it's a long book with lots to say, right? So uh, there are different approaches in terms of how to do your sermons, which how what approach do you take? Do you take it through a whole book consecutively? Do you take a lectionary view? Um, And all of these options are valid. And sometimes in some areas, people would actually do a bit of both, like one style in the morning, another style in the afternoon. Um, And then, of course, you have also catechism services where the text is not there is a scripture text But the priority is to work through a particular section of the catechism. And those were often in the afternoon, often intended for youngsters, servants. People have to learn more about the basics of their faith. Although it was always harder to get people to come to the catechism service than it was to get them to come even to the morning service on Sunday morning.
0: Yeah, I know Luther for sure definitely had those catechal sermons in the afternoon. Yeah. So now there's the what's the purpose of preaching? You know, those definitely are primarily teaching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, for Luther, at least uh, Christ at the center. Um, it was interesting. I noticed in your book, you brought up that that Luther perspective on preaching. And I think you brought up a quote where he said in the past, no one ever heard a sermon. And you explained, well, no, they, there were examples of, of preaching. I, I don't think it was very consistent across the board in the medieval Catholic Church. But his point was they weren't on point. They weren't focusing on, on that topic. Yeah, more and, and less, he yeah. Was
1: saying this within a polemical context, right? He's trying right. to make a point at the point. He's not just really trying to give you historical accuracy right. here. It's it's more of a polemical, this is what it was before, and now it's much better for this and this reason.
0: Right. And Luther would never be sarcastic or use hyperbole or anything like oh, that. No, of course no, not. No. Of course not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that, that was very interesting. And I know um we've had other podcasts on on preaching over history and, and this topic I'm sure will Uh, interest many of our our listeners um for the sake of time though i think we'll move on past past preaching you do say some more in your book um but another major subject and again you mentioned earlier a lot of this comes out of comparison comparatively we're not only making a positive statement about what we do believe but also this is definitely what we don't believe and this comes down to the the sacraments both the, the doctrine and the practice we could easily do i'm sure several episodes just covering the doctrine and those differences. Um for the sake of time, I don't want to assume everyone knows what those differences are, but let's assume there are some differences as you know I think you see this particularly between Zwingli and Luther and another (laughs) the 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 Reformed and Lutherans probably get into this um quite a bit over the decades. Um but what do those doctrinal differences look like as they are played out in practice in worship, which is what you
1: focus on. So let's start with baptism, because I think that's kind of important. Obviously, baptism is the one that is most different when you look at the Anabaptists. Who didn't think of themselves as rebaptizing ever. They thought they were doing the one original baptism as believers' baptism as adults. That is clearly a marker of distinction that led to horrific results for the Anabaptists because their death rates were just awful. Um, they were condemned for that reason, for other reasons, very, very severely by Lutherans, Reformed folks, Catholics. You know, it's just really difficult to be an Anabaptist at this time. Um, You do see a fairly interesting divergence in the practice of baptism based on theology when it comes to whether it is okay or not to do emergency baptisms. So for Catholics, for Anglicans, and even for Lutherans, the option of doing an emergency baptism was going to be at least a possibility, right? In the Catholic Church, it was totally understood emergency baptisms are okay because the danger of a baby who is unbaptized, at least the Catholic doctrine, until very recently, was that baby was not going to go ever to heaven. It was going to limbo as an unbaptized baby, and it could not be buried in consecrated ground. There's a lot of very difficult pastoral realities in a time where infant mortality is very, very high, right? So, uh, you find the biggest change there between, especially Catholic, comparing, say, Catholic to Reformed, is whether or not a midwife's baptism is allowed, right? And midwives, Catholic midwives are trained to do, we're trained to do emergency baptisms, right? And it had to be done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and it had to be done with water. But after that, it counted. It was a valid baptism. Um, In the Anglican church, they accepted that and they would, um, if necessary, if they thought it wasn't done right, like they could do if you had been conditionally baptized, you could be properly baptized in church, but they are willing to accept that. The Reformed have a different theology of baptism, right? For a Reformed believer, uh, the theology of baptism said baptism does not properly save you. It is not salvific. Baptism in itself is not salvific. It is a sign and seal of your salvation, but it does not save you. So parents of babies who were born and who died immediately afterwards and were not baptized are told that they should not feel that their baby is lost. Their baby is safe because they are the child of a believing family and covenantally they are within the family of God, uh, whether or not they got baptized. But that's a really hard adjustment for parents, right? And so even after the Reformation came to Geneva or Zurich or other places, families with an infant that had been born dead or had not been baptized before it was, uh, before they, the baby died, there's still a very strong pull towards these um, sanctuary chapels, where under Catholic practice, these chapels existed to essentially um, find ways to revive the baby long enough for the baby to be baptized. And it involved feathers and candles and hot air. And, you know, if the feather moved off the baby, it was a sign the baby drew breath, the baby was immediately baptized. And then, you know, so you can you can discuss that, you know, is that is that valid? Is that Is that um, taking advantage of someone's grief? But it was very important for parents to find a way to be assured of their baby's salvation. And you can just see pastorally why that was such a big deal, right? So the theology has an impact. Um, How you did the baptism varied somewhat. Um, Most churches end up going for sprinkling. I think that's mostly because it's awkward to undress a baby, put them underwater, pull them out again, dress them again. It's just complicated. Um, the liturgies of baptism become much simpler the more you go towards the Reformed end of the spectrum, right? You don't have the anointing with oil. You don't have the blowing on the baby. You don't have the lit candle. You don't have any of those things. Um, a Reformed baptism is just very, very simple. Um, it's the naming and the um essentially de- declaration that this infant is now part of the family of God. Um, one interesting feature was that in medieval baptisms, largely the parents were absent. Parents did not come to baptism. The godparents brought the baby to baptism and the midwife. Um, Calvin uh insisted that the father should come. Mothers are recovering. They're not coming usually, but the father has to come. Um, and then you get into problems as well over the naming of babies. What name shall the child get? Because that's where the child essentially gets the identity. It gets their name. Mm-hmm. And in Geneva, the big debate was... Are there names that should not be given to children, right? Are there names that are not sufficiently Protestant? And you think, well, okay, well, what's a Catholic name exactly? Um, they make a list in Geneva of names you cannot give your baby. You cannot call your baby after the three wise men. Well, you think, okay, wait a moment. I didn't know the three wise men had names. Well, in the legends they did. Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. You may not call your baby any of those names. You may not call your baby Jesus, you may not call your baby Angel, there's all sorts of names you may not give your baby. You may not call your baby in Geneva Claude or Claudine or Claudette or any variety thereof because there was a shrine to St. Claude in Catholic Savoy just outside Geneva. And so for the pastors of Geneva, parents giving their babies these names was implicitly a sign of continued Catholic superstition, and they don't want that. But of course, the parents are trying to name their baby either after themselves or after godparents and create kinship bonds, right? And in that first generation of the Reformation, there's tons of parents in Geneva, tons of adults called Caspar and Melchior and Balthazar and Claude, right? So you get these scenes and it literally happened. You come to baptism. The father is there. He has the baby. The pastor takes the baby from the father. He says, by what name shall this child be called? And the father, who apparently hasn't read any of the edicts, says, Claude, but the pastor baptizes the baby, Abraham. Okay, now think how you would feel as a father if that happened to you, right? There's almost riots that break out in these baptism services. And what's happening is the two sides are talking past each other, right? The pastors are worried about incipient or resurgent superstition. And the Genevans are saying, wait a moment, choosing these names doesn't make us any less reformed right? It's a sign of kinship. It's a sign of the bonds that we have in our community. These are the names of our community. We want to honor the legacy, the history, the continuation, the kinship, and they just can't find a way to talk to each other effectively about these things. So even baptism, there's there's there are all sorts of issues around baptism, like how should it be done? What's an appropriate way of doing it? Um, is it okay to wait for a baptism? Often not, because that's a sign that you might be Anabaptist. So delaying a baptism is a problem, right? Uh, but there was very much a sense that baptism was what made you part of the community. So it's a really essential practice. And that doesn't make it, that's the same wherever you look in Reformation Europe. Now, when it comes to the Lord's Supper. It gets even more complicated because, as you said, there's different theologies that are then manifested in different practices. Um, The Reformed and the Lutherans and the Catholics end up on a sort of a spectrum of views uh, with the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation being front and center in the mass. You can't not have that doctrine if you're Catholic. That's just front and center. Uh, The Lutherans and the Reformed fought badly over whether there is a real presence of Christ physically in the bread and the wine. Um, How that then shows in the liturgy is, do you or do you not break the bread during the ceremony, during the words of of the sacrament? Do you actually break the bread? The Reformed would break it, the, the Lutherans would not. Right, and so the, this whole debate is called the debate over fractio panis, breaking of the bread. They actually have pretty big arguments about that, especially in areas that were Lutheran and that go Reformed. Right? Is it okay to break the bread during the words of blessing of the bread and the wine? Is that is that okay to do that or not? That's a big point of difference. Um, how did you? you take, sorry, go ahead.
0: Sorry, yeah, sorry. Just could you explain um, the theology or the idea behind breaking? and maybe why you would resist breaking, because I've heard but, that before.
1: <laughs> so, so the problem is that if you are Lutheran and you hold to the real presence of Christ in the bread or the wine, you do not want to break that until you get to the very part of distributing the host or whatever else you're doing. Um, for the Reformed with the emphasis on remembering what Christ did at the Last Supper, he took the bread, he broke it, he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples and said, right? So you're kind of just redoing those actions line by line. He took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, right? So the emphasis on remembering allows you to essentially take the same steps. As you remember, as you recall the Last Supper, you do those gestures. But for the Lutherans, that was not okay. That was not the way you did it because it's it's the real presence of Christ in the bread and in the wine. Um, and it also then affects what you do with leftovers, right? If you have leftover bread, leftover wine, how do you handle them? What do you do with them? In the Lutheran tradition, everything was much more considered holy right you have certain things you may do or may not do with the bread and the wine the reformed um i think they still are you know behaving properly but they're not worried about a sacramental quality intrinsically of the bread and the wine so there's more flexibility there in terms of what you do
0: yeah and of course the lutherans aren't doing a sacrifice either they, they oh. lutherans and reformed you know they both um I'm doing my, my readings. I think for Meagley and Calvin were some of the strongest ones who really, really don't like the Corpus Christi um, yes. concept. And of course, Lutheran Lutherans don't either. But um, like you said, they're kind of caught in the middle of uh, both sides saying, well, you're not doing it. The Lutherans are, are caught in the middle on, on that. So, yeah. Yeah. And of course, the Catholics would have that whole tabernacle thing too, where do you keep the Yep. The, the consecrated yep. Yeah. The elements afterward. Right. Yep. Yeah,
1: Or even the ceremonies of Corpus Christi, right. Where you actually have a festival and process through the town with the consecrated host in a monstrance, in this big sort of decorated thing with a the coast inside of it and you hold it up and you walk around the town. It's a way of blessing your town, blessing your community. Mm-hmm. And certainly it was the case, um, In France, in the early years of the French Reformation, the growing presence of French evangelicals, they're called les évangéliques, in France in the 1530s, 1540s, 1550s, there's an attempt by some of these early French Protestants to disrupt the Corpus Christi processions and to attack the consecrated host and literally to tear it out of someone's hands, out of the priest's hands and stomp on the ground all over it. Okay. So that would be a way of physically declaring that this is not holy. This has just been stomped into the mud. Right. And I tell this story to my students and they sometimes sometimes think it's kind of comical. Right. That this procession would be disrupted by somebody rushing in and knocking something down, stomping all over it and running away again. But I tell them, look, to a Catholic, it would be as serious, as sacrilegious, as if you were at a 4th of July parade. And someone rushed out in the middle of the parade, grabbed the U.S. flag, tore it out of someone's hands and stomped on the ground all over it and then ran off again. It has that visceral kind of level of upset, right? Mm -hmm. And we've gotten away from that. But we have to think that for Catholics at the time, this is the body of Christ. And that's just about the worst thing you can do to that is just to go and desecrate it literally in that way.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I also noticed, um, in practice. So of course, Catholics would have mass every, you know, wor- it's not really worship without mass, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, Lutherans vary, but probably tend to have it more often than, than not. Mm-hmm. Of course, big variance, but in Geneva, I noticed it was, we'll do it on rotation and maybe several once a month or at least at different quarterly. churches. Right. So yeah, court, qu- yeah, quarterly. Yeah, I think it was once a month for three churches. So it ended up being quarterly, if I recall correctly. Yeah, so that was, um, does that maybe reflect the importance of of the view, the necessity of the sacrament, maybe? It's
1: more and more necessary. Yeah, it's an interesting question. If you have something more often, does that make it more significant or less significant, right? If you have it more often, is it, like this is the heart of what we do and is so important that we need to have it every time. Or if we have it less often, does that mean we're actually less interested in that? And it's sort of a minor key. Or is it more important because you do it less often, right? It's so difficult to unpack that.
0: Yeah, it is. Um,
1: Certainly in in the Reformed areas, the uh, quarterly communions would be uh, preceded, the preceding Sunday, by a Sunday of preparation. Right. So you don't just leap into the communion Sunday and think, oh, here we go again. No, there's a Sunday of preparation beforehand where people are meant to examine their hearts, examine their lives, reconcile with their neighbors, sort out any problems they're having, and then come to the table of the Lord in a proper and good frame of mind, reconciled with God, reconciled with their neighbor. Um, the Genevan body of discipline, the consistory, was always busiest right before the quarterly communion, as everybody's trying to fix up any problems they're having before they actually come to the table. Um so it's it's um these these uh these quarterly communions, they could be very significant events. And in Scotland, which went Presbyterian, they could have it perhaps as as infrequently as twice a year, but then it's a really, really big deal, right? Mm-hmm. And even when churches had it more often, like in the Anglican church, again, the the st- standard Sunday worship would include the celebration of the Eucharist, right? But people might not actually partake, right? They might be present for it, but not go up to receive it. So there's also different things going on here, even in the Catholic Mass. Receiving was not common before the Reformation, right? You received once a year, likely. You had to receive once a year. After doing a confession, most people did that at Easter Mm -hmm. time. But to be present during the moment of consecration, when the bread and the wine are lifted up and become, by miracle, the body and blood of Christ, that's the holy moment. That's where everybody wants to be present. That's when the bells ring. And uh, that is, for Catholics before the Reformation, partaking wasn't the deal. Like, partaking physically, being Mm -hmm. present at the Mass and, and witnessing that miracle, that was what was important. Right, and, and some of it carries over into the Anglican Church into the Lutheran Church after the Reformation,
0: yeah, I'm more of a studying more of the nineteenth century American context, and there are definitely Lutherans who were probably down a quarterly, maybe twice a year, um and Lutherans today sometimes from certain um corners of Lutheranism look at that almost like with four like oh, you only had it four times a year, but some of the only records we have from those churches was the everyone's registered, and it was Lutherans have also been mixed history on do you do private confession or not sometimes yes sometimes no um those kinds of things still have been playing out the centuries after this even within these uh, various traditions yeah so another thing i noticed too um in the 1840s in baltimore uh, the guy i study he was kind of appalled when he found out his so-called lutheran congregation were breaking the bread mm-hmm. For the sacrament he says, No, what are you doing? You know, what are you doing? And we don't do that. Up, we don't
1: do that. You don't yeah.
0: do that. And, well, it, it happened so often in America, there's a mixed congregation. Well, mostly of immigrants, right? We're all German, but you're Reformed on Lutheran, we'll just do this together. And sometimes you got a mixed practice yeah. that that you know this was all fun, uh foundational in the 1500s with the, with the Reformation still affecting uh Christian worship centuries later. So that's that's why this topic I find so fascinating because it really is relevant to or recent more recent history and current practices as well no matter which um, tradition you're, you're part of this is all very Absolutely. foundational yep. yeah all right well let's uh, we have a little bit of time left I think we can tackle a couple more content uh, discussion points um, we talked about the, some of the interaction between the church and state authorities and we also mentioned or you mentioned that the church authorities were also state authorities by nature of their their office but what were some of the challenges that the reformers and then the various Protestants um, faced when the governing authorities maybe got a little overzealous or overeager? Um, and I'm thinking of one story about uh, kind of a mass communion episode.
1: So it's, you know, it's a tricky thing, right? Because the reformers appealed to secular rulers in the early Reformation as a counterweight to the power of the Catholic Church right? So the reasons why Luther or other reformers write to their governments to protect and 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 guide the church is because they need a counterweight. They need a counterweight to the force of the Catholic Church. Okay, the government is sometimes very eager, sometimes a little surprised, but hey, sure, why not? We'll come in. And then having given authority to the civil authorities over the church, the reformers then find that the civil authorities sometimes decide, okay, fine. Yeah, we're in charge. We'll take care of everything. But then sometimes the reformers find that they got more than they bargained for, right? The, the civil authorities now want to be the deciders on these matters. So it's a bit like you invite group B into your house to get rid of problem A and problem A is duly solved, but now the B group is sitting in your house in your living room and putting their feet on your sofa, and you can't get rid of them now. What do you do? Right? You've 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 countered one problem with another, but now you have a second problem. So um it is the case that the government sometimes had a slightly different picture as to what should go on compared to what the church leaders thought. And particularly church leaders tended to be very focused on our group and our way of doing things. And anywhere that was like the Dutch authorities, which I mentioned already, where there's perhaps different groups within the community that they have to bear in mind in some way, there's less um unity between the government leaders on the one hand and the church leaders on the other. And the church leaders tend to get frustrated because they feel that the government authorities aren't being sufficiently strict about those border areas. So one example, for instance, is the city of Basel which is a german city and it had a mixed population it had a majority lutheran population but it had a number of uh dutch originally dutch calvinists who had come south from the dutch lands out of because they were being persecuted so they come into vesel settle there and then there are some continuing catholic communities in vesel there's uh including a uh a a monastery um, with the Knights of St. John, which was actually a crusading order from the Catholic Church, and they're in Basel. So you got the Lutheran majority and a Catholic group and a Reform group. And so the authorities, the civil authorities in Basel, decided that they needed to have communal unity. Okay? They don't want people dividing. They want to have a unified community. So they say everybody in church together and we'll do communion together. One church. And officially it's Lutheran, but they want to leave room for other communities so that the Knights of St. John are allowed to sing Latin hymns before the service starts, which upsets the Calvinists a lot. The Calvinists also don't like the fact that it's a Lutheran communion service and the Lutheran pastor wants to put the bread on people's tongues and they don't want that. They want it in their hand. So there's like back and forth over that. There's the whole business of breaking it, not breaking it. The Lutherans, meanwhile, are upset because they don't think the reform should be present at their ceremony and it's not right to do that. Uh, it's a big, big snarly mess, right? Um, But the the authorities of Vasel persist, the political authorities of Vasel persist, and this joint Operation continues for a good number of decades, right, until the 17th century, the early 1600s, where essentially they end up saying, okay, no, this isn't working. And we'll have three different groups with three different communion services, a Catholic mass, a Lutheran Eucharist, and then a Reformed communion service as well. But before that, in the sixteen hundreds, from about the in the sixteenth century, from about the fifteen seventies through the end of the century, they tried this really interesting model of everybody together in one church. Uh, Because of the primary emphasis on unity, because a divided community is not good, because we need to have everybody together, and we don't want people dividing up.
0: Yeah. That that makes a professional lutherans listening cringe a bit to see the, the fellowship practices being enforced that way i'm sure like you said it was problematic on all sides everyone had had an issue um but yeah that's also a historical theme too of when suddenly unity whether it's church or political unity becomes the highest priority then everything else there's a lot of needs to fall in line and it's just a usually a mess we see that with the the prussian union and the 19th century as well, just among many other examples. But I found that fascinating. We normally think of, at least I do, um, kind of an ecumenical joint worship as being a much more recent concept. Mm-hmm. But not not from a political point of view. You valued unity uh, for the strength of your own society. Um, yes, I think then. that's.
1: I think that's true. I think that the the church leaders of Basel. I mean, especially the Lutherans had the majority, so they feel like their way should be the only way and everybody should do things their way kind of thing. But it's a bit like, um, it seems like the religious authorities at best would have preferred what they call for toddlers parallel play. You know, you have three little kids and each kid is playing beside the other, but they're all doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. Much better than any cooperative playing that could be could be managed. The, the Vasil authorities are quite um, advanced in their thinking in some ways and trying something that is you know, really hard to achieve, but they felt that the benefits of that for the health of the community was more than having everyone go off in their own different... And, and really the the option of three different faith communities operating separately and um, publicly at the same time was not a concept that the 16th century was, was very happy with.
0: Yeah, very, very interesting anecdote. Was that... Um i'm trying to remember had someone done uh, a lot of work on that before or is that yeah
1: jesse Sorry? jesse spawnholtz is the, the the scholar he's a, a scholar out in washington state and he's done a lot of work on that yeah okay
0: yeah very very interesting little episode there um so maybe to wrap up our, our content for today um we're talking about the immersive experience and by the way i just really that's what got me into history as a kid you know you go to historical reenactment, you go to Colonial Williamsburg or whatever, if you can imagine yourself being there, suddenly history is a lot more relatable. It's honestly just a lot more fun. And that's, again, a big part of what your book was doing, really pulling people into it. And one of the things people would notice, most of all, or first, probably in a worship setting would be the arts, both the visual and the, the audible uh, arts. So at the time that we have left today, what were some of the various views of the reformers on the arts? We mentioned it briefly earlier. Uh, What does that look like in practice?
1: So it becomes an issue in places that are going to go reformed primarily because they are the ones who take that section of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not have a graven image, and apply it to the worship space. And from their point of view, what they are doing is purifying the space for appropriate worship. Obviously, for the Catholics whose churches are being smashed, that feels like desecration, and it's just a horrendous thing to live through. Um, the end result is that you get Catholic and Lutheran churches that can actually look very, very similar. Like there are Lutheran churches you can walk into in Germany today, and you're not sure. Is this a Lutheran church or is this a Catholic church? You can't tell. It's just as ornamented the one as the other. The Lutherans tended to be much more comfortable with retaining a lot of the imagery, the altar pieces, the statues, the crucifixes, the whole nine yards, then, um, their then the Reformed counterparts. Although it's not consistent, right? There are Lutheran churches that are also very bare and very plain, right? So it's a-, there's a spectrum there within the Lutheran communities. Um, the Reformed, you can tell, right? Okay, no, this is not a Catholic church. We can tell, right? Um, and the interesting thing is when the Reformed built their own churches, they tended to reconfigure the whole geography, right? So a Catholic church, standard church, would be shaped like a cross, right? Now you've got the, the nave, you've got the transept, you've got the altar at the front. Um, reformed churches built independently tended to build built in a square or in a round, and the focus is the pulpit. So there's no front with the altar. It's everything circling around the pulpit. And there's a beautiful example in Scotland, uh, a little town in Fife called Burnt Island has a church from the late 16th century. And it's, yeah, it's shaped essentially as a square. Um, it's beautiful. Um, so just the church interior changes. Um, they don't tend to get rid of stained glass windows because smashing windows is just dumb. They're expensive and you might as well just keep it. And people, they figured no one's going to worship a window. So that's probably okay. Um, in some cases, the Reformed put in biblical text as decoration. So the word of God becomes then what is on the whitewashed walls. So there's no image, no no fresco, no nothing, but there's the word of God put on the wall, and everyone gets to look at that. There's a beautiful example in Zurich in the Church of St. Peter. Um, and that is interesting because it's at the same time. Um, visual work and yet at the same time also a teaching tool, right? In a way that replaces the art in a, in a very different way, but also calls upon literacy, right? Calls upon the ability to read beyond the beautiful script. Knowing what it says is, is going to be important for congregations. So the, the church interiors look very different. Um, and depending on where you stand on the spectrum, you think, oh, it's beautiful, it's austere, it's plain, or you think, ooh, this is cold and this is barren, you know, so it really depends where you fit on that spectrum, and I think in reaction, you get the Catholic Church of the 17th century going for the Rococo movement, you know, everything gilded golden and little angels everywhere, um, so it's it's quite, um, it'll give you sort of a mental whiplash to go from a very austere plain reformed church into a highly decorated baroque catholic church of the 17th century but yeah it was a very different visual experience and then when it came yeah. to music sorry go ahead
0: no i was just saying go ahead when yeah. it
1: comes to music then it's also uh there's a wide range obviously luther um favored the singing of hymns chorales get congregations singing um Words based on scripture, obviously, but not necessarily just paraphrases of scriptural text. In other words, human human written hymns were okay. The Reformed either went for no music at all, which was the case in Zurich up till 1590. They had no music in their church, um, or you had to only sing paraphrases of texts of scripture, mostly psalms, but also other texts like the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, uh the Song of Simeon, um, and the singing of psalms really became the hallmark of Reformed worship. Um, in the Anglican church, you get a sort of a, a mixture. You get the tradition of high church anthems, right? beautiful compositions that need to train choir, and also psalm singing. As Sternhold and Hopkins, the English Psalter, becomes very popular in England, and also obviously psalm singing in Scotland. Um, they, they really embrace that, and congregations really get hold of that practice and develop it, both in church and out of church, as their standard preferred way of, of sharing in, in worship.
0: Yeah, it's all very interesting. I, I just did a little research on the probably the most famous hymn tune across the board is the, the Old Hundredth, right? And yep. that's uh, that's uh, set to a psalm tune. But then, you know, if there, there you can kind of trace the line, because I think you know, Calvin, when he was in Strasbourg for that little bit, he picked up kind of the German him influence from Luther, and then he kind of took his own way with it. So it almost comes full full circle where everyone's still influencing each other, but also at the same time being very distinct. And I, to me, that at least the visual arts seems to be done on, on purpose. You know, we're very distinct in our doctrines, on, you know, sacraments, for example. And now let's take maybe a guiding principle for visual arts and really just dive into it to make sure we even look more distinct. From each other, too, and but there's a reason behind it, too. It's not just to be different. There is a theological grounding for that. Oh, well, that was that was fun. I had fun going through it. But <laughs> i well, have your book. any other last uh, thoughts, anecdotes, or points you'd like to make?
1: You know, I just I really want people to get a better sense that the way we do things today is rooted in past practices, and we can't really understand. Why we do things the way we do them now, or what the controversy today is all about, unless we understand further back, you know, where does this come from, right? Why do some churches have the bread and the wine passed along the pews, and other people go forward to receive, right? What's the deal? How is this? What what makes this a a distinction? So I think a lot of times we tend to end up in arguments over worship because we don't always remember just how visceral the experience of worship is for people. Uh, many folks who may not think much about theology, you know, they don't read theology, they don't discuss theology, but boy, you start to change their hymns, they'll let you know about it. Right? Yes. It's because we are formed by worship. It is the one thing if you're a practicing Christian, every week this is where you are and this becomes inculcated from childhood on. And it it is operating at a deeper level than a lot of other things are. And so trying to be aware of that and knowing how important it is to people's identity of themselves, I think that's really what this project is all about.
0: Yeah, very well said. And, and with that, I encourage people to pick up your book, at least as a starter, uh, an introduction to this. But you, 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 you pull people deep into it with those primary sources, which, which I love. All right. Well, I think that's about enough time that we have for our discussion today. Thank you so much, Dr. Mogg, for joining us. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much.